the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com, or you find podcasts or previous shows. And uh, you also get podcasts on Spotify and iTunes as well. Uh, also follow us on social media, at Dan Prof Show, both on Facebook and Twitter, at uh, Prof Dan on Instagram. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, the, uh, you know, the modeling, the uh, revised range of projected deaths from coronavirus that was discussed in uh, some detail, sort of the, the top line coming out of uh, uh, Tuesday night's COVID task force briefing. And... Um, uh, how doctors Burks and Fauci dealt with it, and just honestly, the stunning ignorance of the D.C. press corps. I mean, has anybody in that press corps taken a basic econometrics class, a, a basic science class where you run across having to manipulate and analyze and think about models? It's remarkable, and it's remarkable how obtuse they are that it takes about an hour longer than it should to understand what uh, these individuals are saying. The doctors who break it down in pretty straightforward layman's terms that uh, the average common sense realist in your neighborhood can um, readily understand uh, the, the anthropomorphization, the anthropomorphization of, of, of models too by the press corps uh, as boogeymen. It's just remarkable. Uh, so uh, here's how that proceeded as a refresher. Dr. Burks on the death estimates. So, of course, this is a projection, and it's a projection based on using um, very much what's happened in Italy and then looking at all the models. Um, and so, as you saw on that slide, that was our real number, that 100,000 to 200,000. And we think that that is the range. We really believe and hope every day that we can do a lot better than that. Um, because that's not assuming 100% of every American does everything that they're supposed to be doing. But I think that's possible. Over the next two weeks, is, you, you said that the next two weeks are going to be very painful. Is the bulk of this going to happen over the next you know, two weeks? No, you have an upslope. So as mortality, the fatalities to this disease will increase, and then it will come back down, and it will come back down slower than the rate at which it went up. Uh, Dr. Fauci following up. The, the modeling that Dr. Burke showed predicts that number that you saw. We don't accept that number that that's what it's going to be. We're going to be doing everything we can to get it even significantly below that. So, you know, I, I don't want it to be a mixed message. This is the thing that we need to anticipate, but that doesn't mean that that's what we're going to accept. And uh, then Fauci, as, as questions persisted, just doing a little 
little bit of a modeling 101 tutorial. If this is full mitigation and it's 100,000, why am I standing here saying I want to make it better? Because that's what the model tells you it's going to do. What we do is that every time we get more data, you feed it back in and relook at the model. Is the model really telling you what's actually going on? And again, I know my modeling colleagues are going to not be happy with me, but models are as good as the assumptions you put into them. And as we get more data, then you put it in, and that might change. So even though it says, according to the model, which is a good model that we're dealing with, this is full mitigation. As we get more data, as the weeks go by, that could be modified. So the suggestions are that mitigation is working here, as it has working to some extent in Britain, certainly to bring the projections down by uh, massive factors. I mean, again, that Imperial College London study down from 500,000 Brits to not to exceed 20,000, you know, factor of, of 25x. <laughs> it's massive. 1.5 or 1 to 2.2 million Americans. Now we're talking about uh, rough numbers, 100,000, 200,000. I hate talking about this because I don't, in this way, I don't want to sound callous, but when you're talking about these, uh, this from a macro numerical perspective, it's hard not to. So just start from the premise that, uh, Every life is precious and nobody wants to be cavalier about anybody else's life. And you want to minimize the loss of life as much as is humanly possible. But as humanly possible in a world of trade-offs is the portion of the conversation a few want to have. Uh, And this was the point of uh, uh, Dan Hannon, former MEP uh, from uh, Runnymede in England. Uh, Dan Hannon writing in Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. It's uh, weighing one set of lives against another. You know, that you can't put a value on human life. That's uh, it's a, a wonderful sentiment, but it's a banality that doesn't really play out in practice. We make trade-offs between life and quality of life all the time. Sure we do. Um, by the way, the people that suggest we don't, the sentimentalists, they're the same people who support abortion and euthanasia, generally speaking. So, I mean... <laughs> You know, don't lecture me, a pro-lifer, about uh, respect for life from conception to natural death. Why don't you? Uh, We obviously should do everything possible, but it can't be without context. For we've talked about this before, what we know about suicides uh, and the stress bringing on illnesses and heart attacks during uh, periods where people are wrecked economically. In Britain. Philip Thomas, who's a professor of risk management at Bristol University, uh, he put a figure on uh, the balancing the lives uh, uh, of uh, those who will get sick and die versus the lives of those who will, I mean, from the virus versus the lives of those who will get sick and die because of economic devastation and all that's attended to that. Uh, he he argues, uh, Philip Thomas does, one, arguing that uh, once the containment measures cause the economy to shrink by more than six and a half percent, they will have cost more lives than the virus itself. Now, uh, he qualifies his estimate in a way that I wish more of these public health modelers would qualify theirs, that uh, that they have inadequate data to make uh, such assumptions or to, to make such projections within a, a strict confidence interval. But that's sort of the case with uh, a lot of this modeling uh, where we still don't have a reliable denominator, not from the perspective of epidemiologists, uh, including uh, 
uh, Professor Goodman at Stanford talked about yesterday. Uh, the, uh, the point is simply that we need to be running the cost-benefit analysis all the time. That's the point that Hannon makes. Updating it as new evidence comes in, ready to lift it, the restriction, lift the restrictions the moment we can. There's lethality. There's a lethality quotient to the restrictions, too. Yeah. And that's not really being discussed. I don't know if people find that unseemly uh, or, um, as I said, callous, but it's real. And uh, when people are saying just, you know, deliver the truth to us on things like supply chain, uh, the, the supplies of personal protective equipment versus the need, ventilators, and just level with us. We're adults. We can take it. Well, we have to be able to take this, too. You know, the, there's the seen and the unseen. The virus is the scene because everybody's in, in the D.C. press corps is a ticker watcher, and that's the source of their material and the basis for any question they can come up with at these briefings, it would seem. And, of course, a lot of people are glued to this, and this is feeding their frenzy. And then you have the stories and the announcements of the death toll on a daily basis and anecdotes about the, the people who have died. And they're terrible stories. They're terrible stories. But uh, what if we did stories of all the people who die from heart disease each day and each year by state and county or car accidents or uh, cancer? What if we decided that we wanted to um, save thousands of lives every year by improving the effective rate of the flu vaccine? I mean, we countenance without any discussion really in the public arena of particular note, the seasonal flu in 2017, 2018. 80,000 Americans died from influenza. The average number of deaths due to influenza between 2014 and 2018 has been 43,000. 43,000. We're at uh, 4,000 with respect to coronavirus at present. I know the number is going to go up. That was the point of Tuesday's briefing. And that's sad. 43,000. Well, what if the, the flu vaccine is uh, 45 to 55 percent effective, which is sort of the, the, the sweet spot in terms of an effective vaccine that's highly recommended that level of effectiveness, as Tony Fauci has mentioned about it before, actually. Well, what if he said that's not good enough for us? If we get to 65 percent or 75 percent, we're literally saving thousands of lives. You know, working off the, the average of the last four years, 43,000. Improve the vaccine by 10 percent, 20 percent, 30 percent over the course of the next three years. We're saving thousands of lives each year. Saving lives. You can't put a cost on, on human life. So should we shut down the economy until we get there? And each successive year until we hit the, the, our incremental goals over the course of a, an annualized uh, uh, over the course of three years or on an annualized basis. I mean, these are the difficult questions that policymakers have to make. But again, the issue is not money versus lives. It's lives versus lives. Isn't it? This is the answer. Walk like an Egyptian. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Dr. Tony Fauci, uh, during last night's briefing, addressed questions about the uh, state of the antivirals that are in clinical trials or under consideration for use to treat COVID-19 infection. Here's what he had to say on the topic. 
there are a number of candidates. The, the drugs that are now being looked at in various ways, either compassionate use, clinical trials, are generally drugs that already exist for other things. There's a whole menu of drugs and interventions that are now going into clinical trials that are not approved for anything yet. I mean, for example, things like uh, immune serum, uh, convalescent plasma, or hyperimmune globulin, or monoclonal antibodies, a variety of other things. Right now, there's a lot of activity going on behind the scenes in the design of the kinds of clinical trials that will give us an answer. Because you need an answer, because if it doesn't work, you want to get it off the table and go to the next one. So there are a lot of things. Vaccine. Uh, uh, Normally take weeks, months. Yeah, no, it takes at least months, at least months, at least. So, I mean, that's the reason why you're seeing a lot of activity with drugs that already exist for other purposes because they're already there. But the drugs that you want to show in a good randomized clinical trial, at very best, are going to take months. I think that may be a little confusing to people the way that was said. He's distinguishing between drugs that already exist. Those should not take months. Right. Because you're talking about an off label use for a drug that already exists, like hydroxychloroquine or remdesivir. They already exist. Now you're talking about using them for something they have been used before, which is, of course, to treat COVID-19. He's talking about new procedures, new drugs to come on the market that have been used for anything. That's what he's talking about. Takes, you know, months. Just an important distinction, because the way he said it, I thought may have been a bit confusing to people. I still didn't really get a handle, though, from him or Trump on when hydroxychloroquine and there's 1,100 trials, as it were, of that drug going on in New York at present, when we might get an answer as to whether that could be used widely, where the FDA will clear it to be used widely, uh, because as Azar, HHS Secretary Azar mentioned on Sunday, they've stockpiled millions of hydroxychloroquine tablets and Z-Packs. And again, this this goes back to something Trump said. This goes back to something that medical professionals have written about in the journal that we mentioned. The standard here should be safe and effective or just safe. And when speed is an issue, and these are trade-offs, speed and safety sometimes, should the standard for particularly an off-label green light from the FDA, should it be safe and effective or just safe? My argument would be safe. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by James Copeland. He's a senior fellow with the Director of Legal Policy and the Director of Legal Policy, I should say, for the Manhattan Institute. And he's written about the real-life costs of bad regulation and bad regulators. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. How did you uh, receive what uh, Dr. Fauci had to say yesterday, and particularly as it pertains to these antivirals coming online or not coming online? Normally, a drug has to go through uh, exhaustive clinical trials with the FDA, and, and be determined safe and effective. Once that hurdle has been cleared for a drug for a use, it can be prescribed, as you call it, off-label for any other use, whether that's been shown effective to the FDA or not. And basically what you're doing is saying, well, the doctor has the safety profile through the, the clinical trials. The, the doctors know what the side effects are and therefore can weigh the evidence. So, so that's, that's one way a lot of drugs, and, and that's what hydro, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine phosphate and these other sorts of antimalarials are, right? I mean, these, these are drugs that uh, have long existed for decades as malarial treatments. They have other treatments as well. The side effect 
effect profile is very well known. And so they've been used, they, they are being used en masse in various situations. In New York, they're using them a, a lot. I had a friend on a ventilator there. Was This was part of the treatment protocol that was used there. Now, the evidence is mixed on this. There's some evidence uh, coming out of China saying, well, maybe this doesn't work at all. There's other evidence out of France, which at least anecdotally suggests some promise. Uh, and some people have written on it, but we really don't know for sure. But it is part of the protocol that's being used right now in the absence of anything better. Uh, others have been uh, have been used in compassionate care cases like remdesivir, which is also in trial. Exactly. Showed promise in two cases of severely ill men in Washington state. And so you can understand why people, myself included, are a bit anxious to get more details from Dr. Fauci and the president about uh, the time horizon to complete those trials and make a decision, because if you get those antivirals online and distributed, then that could be a real game changer. You want to talk about flattening the curve in terms of lethality rate that could happen virtually overnight if there's the promise that there seems to be in one or more of these treatments. Yeah, and I don't expect that anytime soon where you would get these online. I mean, again, these are either experimental or drugs that have real side effects. I mean, listen, the, the side effect profiles aren't that bad. I mean, it, it's not as if uh, you weren't using antimalarial drugs like hydroxychloroquine, you know, regularly if you go to Africa as a prophylactic. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the same dosage profile you'd use in a severe case like what we're talking about here with someone who's really got an active COVID-19 yeah, but we, uh, situation. And I know this isn't a trial and you don't want to overextrapolate from the anecdotal, but when it, uh, you're talking about uh, people that are in, um, you know, sort of last rights territory, you have case studies from Washington State with respect to remde- remdesivir and you have other case studies with respect to hydroxychloroquine. Again, right to try. Why not make it more public that we're going to clear right to try or, doc, you know, per doctor's discretion for drugs that have shown promise uh, where we have real world case studies? I've long argued that. In fact, I mean, I, and this is the point I made in, in, in the column uh, you referenced. Um, and and, and I, I agree with your general instinct here, safe and effective versus just safe. There is value in doing efficacy trials uh, through the FDA, um, but there's also value in getting drugs out there more quickly, and we see that right now. But in the ordinary case, we don't often see it, and if you drag on for years, even longer than a decade, getting drugs to market that actually would save lives in, in these less critical situations, you're still talking about real lives being cost uh, by the FDA uh, based on efficacy trials, Whereas maybe, at least for certain types of drugs, drugs that have real life and death potential consequence, safety trials are what you want. And then you allow this sort of off-label standard for all classes of drugs that might be life-saving. Uh, and, and let doctors really weigh the, the, the evidence out there. I mean, you know, they're not going to do it perfectly. Uh, but, but then you, you can create various regulatory uh, incentives to get the efficacy trials in there, too. Uh, but we know that off-label prescribing um, for certain types of uh, situations, is it, extremely common. I mean, 21% of all d- approved drugs are used off-label in some form, according to, to some published studies. 39% of uh, ICU emergency care type uh, applications of drugs are, in fact, off-label today. So, so this is, is, is commonly done, and, and maybe we ought to remove more of those barriers so some of these drugs that, that uh, are, are more experimental could be out there once we know the safety profile. Well, this is a real case study in government versus the dynamism of the the market, central planning versus uh, the free exchange. So in three weeks in February, 
CDC processed 4,000 tests uh, in three weeks since the March 12th authorization for Roche. They've done 1.1 million tests. Wow. What a difference. What a commentary on central planning. James Copeland, senior fellow with and director of legal policy for the Manhattan Institute. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, thanks to uh, Republican Congressman Brian Stile from Kenosha. He's uh, the young man who uh, is in his first term after replacing Paul Ryan uh, north of the Cheddar Curtain from Chicago, where I live, uh, just across the border in Wisconsin. He is uh, moving to see if he can't get uh, Congress to claw back the $25 million grant that the Kennedy Center received from you, the American taxpayer. And uh, upon receiving that grant, as I I think I mentioned yesterday, but it really bears repeating, particularly as there's more discussion now about what phase four disaster relief slash stimulus slash bribing people with their own money might look like. $25 million the Kennedy Center gets. Why? Because it's the Kennedy Center? Because it's a playground for the who's who inside the Beltway? Oh, because people weren't attending the Kennedy Center while it was shut down? Like every other theater and every other... uh, venue for an artistic company in the country, right? Why is the Kennedy Center special? Hmm. $25 million grant is what the Kennedy Center received. And without strings, it's not one of these forgivable loans, grant. And then immediately furloughed its musicians with the suspension of health insurance for said musicians to follow. Now, on the flip side, U.S. businesses with fewer than 500 employees are available to access forgivable loans from the SBA if they've seen revenue declines of at least 50 percent first quarter of 2020 versus first quarter of 2019. And they keep their employees on the payroll then the loans will be forgiven. Otherwise, they're loans, loans, not grants, paying interest, paying them back to incentivize companies to keep people on the payroll, although I'm not so sure that uh, there's not some moral hazard embedded there. We'll get to that in a second. But but it's just so important to understand this, that the ruling class is real and it's real maddening. What that says about the priorities of those in positions of authority. Who pay a lot of lip service to, you know, the little guy, the creative set, the productive risk taker. In other words, the entrepreneur, the business owner, operator. The small businessman and businesswoman that you hear politicians prattle on about all the time. And then when it comes to it, 
you get a, a loan if you abide these particular strictures. And our friends at the Kennedy Center, where we, uh, you know, where we hang out and play dress up, they get a grant that you're financing as well. Hmm. It's curious, isn't it? We had this conversation with Rich Carlgard, the publisher of Forbes on last night's show about uh, how social fabric was fraying before the pandemic. And there were uh, entire presidential campaigns uh, run on income inequality. In fact, they're still being run because Bernie Sanders is uh, not Bolsheviking his way out of the race yet. What do you think the income inequality is going to be after we emerge from this pandemic? Who is least able to take the economic hammering that will occur between now and the end of April at minimum? And it will just get worse, obviously, if the effective shutdown of the country extends into May and June. Of course, it's the little guy. The people families on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. The people those same champagne socialists pay all this lip service to being concerned about you. They're outraged at the income inequality. They're outraged at income inequality and they take your tax dollars and bundle them in grant form to the tune of $25 million for the Kennedy Center, which uh, Nancy Pelosi and uh, the Pelosi family could finance personally. Maybe if uh, Die Fi and her husband helped. I've got another example I want to go through with you with respect to the Ivy League. More champagne socialists. Their lip service and who they really are in the moment. Harvard, we talked about last week. Now we'll throw Yale in as well. Right after that. No safe spaces. This uh, great documentary, number one political documentary of 2019, featuring our friend Dennis Prager, as well as Adam Carolla, is available for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. Nosafespaces.com. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, picking up our discussion on the Kennedy Center and the ruling class. It's real and it's real maddening. Yale University, along with the University of New Haven, were asked by New Haven, Connecticut Mayor Justin Elliker to open up their dorms to first responders who are risking their lives to treat and transport coronavirus patients uh, and who have family members who've been potentially exposed to the coronavirus. You know, because the schools are shut down now, distance learning, all that. Mm -hmm. Uh, University of New Haven agreed to open up the dorms. What do you think Yale did? Yale refused. They uh, said uh, they uh, can't get the students' belongings out of the dorms. 
University of New Haven rolled out the red carpet for us, the mayor told the, the uh, local newspaper. They work to quickly get students' belongings out of the dorms, and they're working for, with us to address other logistical and liability hurdles. We're quite close to finalizing an agreement with them so that our police officers and firefighters can begin moving into the space in the coming days. Yale? Can't do it. The spokeswoman for Yale. Our student rooms still contain their, students' rooms contain their belongings. Uh, and so, but we have, we're thinking about, uh, the feasibility of packing and storing and so on and so forth, pursuing schemes that involve professional movers and so on and so forth, but can't do it. Yale has a $30 billion endowment. So they offered a million bucks to help write a check, make it go away. Let's not get our hands dirty or bring those people on campus. Huh? $30 billion endowment. Again, Harvard, we talked about last week, $41 billion endowment, but uh, not liquid enough to be able to retain the, the uh, workers in their dining halls. The contract workers in their dining halls get let go when the school shuts down during the, uh, the virus. Uh, the uh, mayor, Mayor Elliker, to his credit, did not take Yale's denial in stride. My response is this. If your house is burning down and you asked a neighbor if your kids could stay at your house and your neighbor said no, but here's a check so you could stay at the Econo Lodge across town, what would that tell you about your neighbor? <laughs> Oof. It is in these times of crisis when people are exposed for their true selves, everyone needs to do their part at this very difficult time, and writing a check does not exempt you from that. Yeah, well, that's how you have to get to the uh, sentimental barbarians, those champagne socialists who uh, will pay lip service to the heroes on our front lines and the first responders, and that's who we really need to be worried about and so on and so forth. They'll say all the right things. Will they do the right thing at any personal inconvenience? Eh, write a check. That'll shut them up. One day after Mayor Elliker ripped Yale in the local newspaper. Uh, Yale had a reversal of heart. They uh, said they would make as many as 300 beds available to first responders, citing the uh, mayor's frustration. No, frustration is a generous way to put it, isn't it? Mm, yeah. uh, Yale University President Peter Salovey, we're eager to help New Haven with this need. We've been working to make this possible. And we agree that we should move as quickly as we can in service of people doing extraordinary work on behalf of the New Haven community and blah, 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 past the champagne flute. <laughs> of course, we couldn't agree more with the mayor after he publicly shamed us, of course. Because the spokes person for Yale had said, we all wish the situation on our campus were different, but because our students had already gone home for spring recess, when we implemented our social distancing, the rooms aren't ready for, a, I'll tell you what, <laughs> I'll tell you what, um, you worried about uh, temporary housing for uh, first responders and their families? What do you, student belongings, clear them out, leave them there. What's the difference? You worried about cops and firefighters and their families stealing somebody's uh, ramen noodles or hot uh, or, or hot pot? 
Uh, what are these? The Yale undergrads have Fabergé eggs in their dorm rooms. Who cares? It's just so telling. And we know from all the survey research that's been done on professors and administrators, particularly in the Ivy League, particularly at places like Harvard and Yale, that these are 95% plus hard, dyed-in-the-wool Bolsheviks, basically, certainly philosophically, not in terms of their disingenuous lip service, but they're champagne socialists. And you are beneath them. They uh, like humanity from a distance. They're willing to help with a check. Invade their space, and it's full NIMBY, isn't it? It's not everywhere, including college campuses. Oh, but by the way, you know, uh, when it comes time to the economic impact of uh, of uh, whatever post-secondary education will look like in a post-COVID-19 America with the ubiquity of distance learning and uh, reconsideration of paying a quarter million dollars, $300,000, $350,000 for four years at an Ivy League school and a lot of other private schools. They'll be right in line for that bailout, too. They'll be with their tin cups to the state trying to get your tax money. They'll be with their tin cups to the federal government trying to get your tax money. Just like the Kennedy Center folks, because you know why? They're the same folks. And they're real, real tiresome. And uh, they're going to be part of uh, whatever the tension is between um, different income levels and different levels of punishment endured when we come out of it. now for another reason why Dan Proft is single. Yeah, it's been a while since we've done this because these are sober times. We need a little bit of comic relief here. And thanks to New York photographer Jeremy Cohen, we have it. I uh, don't put this much effort in in good times and calm times, much less in a time of pandemic. Jeremy Cohen flew his number to a mystery girl he saw dancing on a rooftop. This is in New York via drone, uh, asking her out on a date. He uh, shared a video on social media of him flying this drone with his phone number attached. Hmm, stalkerish, perhaps. He thought this was a way to do something novel, and good novel, not as in novel coronavirus. Cohen uh, then um, enjoyed a first date with Tori from his balcony while she sat on her roof. Then he said he wanted to see her in person without breaking social distancing rules. So how to navigate that? Well, here's what he did. He uh, showed up to meet her inside one of those, you know, those like big protective bubble things. You roll around and you bump into each other. 
So there's a picture. Uh, this is uh, from the Daily Mail of him in one of those big bubble things and her standing like a normal human being on the street. So I don't know. They apparently had a meal together. I don't know exactly how that works, if there's some portal to those things where you can have a sandwich or something. The dinner apparently went well, however it went. I don't know. He's working on uh, something creative to do for the next day, so long as the shelter-in-place order is in force in New York City. Related stories in the area of interpersonal relationships and romantic relationships. On the other side of the equation, those who have fallen out of love as opposed to in it, uh, in Russia, there's not just a uh, uh, temporary ban on weddings, on divorces. The Justice Ministry telling regional authorities around Russia that they should stop registering weddings and divorces until after June 1st. Uh, by the way, Russia has a high rate of marital breakdown. Sixty uh, percent of marriages end in divorce, according to uh, this story from which I am pulling this information. So can you can you imagine can you imagine if boy that was you want to talk about uh, a draconian you want to talk about where there would be revolt uh, well, social distancing is one thing trying to survive in the home with uh, the wife or the husband depending on your perspective for weeks on end that much exposure uh, that you're not used to that's one thing banning divorce but I wonder how that would be received in America uh, now in Panama they're doing the opposite they're separating. Panamanians by gender in terms of who can go out when they have strict quarantine measures in place, but uh, men are going to be able to go to the supermarket or pharmacy, the, the acceptable places, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Saturdays. Women are allowed out on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. Nobody gets to go out on Sundays. That's going to be enforced for two weeks. I mean, I, it, it sort of makes sense. Get all the guys out of the house at once uh, every other day. Get all the women out of the house every other day. Let them be separated from their spouses or uh, loved ones, you know, significant others, and then spend time with friends and then social distancing rules enforced. And then, uh, you know, maybe that's a way to um, flatten the curve of tension uh, uh, in the home, perhaps. Panama, yes. Russia, curious. Uh, Dating in a protective bubble, no. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. You can follow us online, danprofshow.com, on social media, at Dan Prof Show. And um, the topic of law enforcement in uh, a time of a pandemic. Our friend Andy McCarthy over at National Review has written about it. And there's uh, some disturbing stories. Talked about um, one yesterday. That's the story of pastors being arrested uh, Florida, what also happened in Louisiana, the one in Florida, particularly troubling, because at least according to his attorney, there were social distancing protocols that were being abided by the uh, congregants to the church of the pastor in Florida who was arrested. You also had uh, uh, this past uh, Sunday and Monday in Greensboro, outside of Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, uh, street counselors, pro-lifers arrested for violating the county stay-at-home order, uh, four on Sunday and 11. 
excuse me, four, four on Sunday and seven on Monday for a total of 11, despite the fact that uh, the pro-life group, I guess, to which they were affiliated, had canceled its group media and everyone was following rules for social distancing as the as a sidewalk counselor outside a pro-life center. Um, that's not encouraging. Something else that's not encouraging is uh, Seattle's police chief, Carmen Best, using her most recent chief's brief update on COVID-19 to urge residents to dial 911 if they're victims of racist name-calling. I'm not kidding. We will document and investigate every reported hate crime, said Chief Best. Even racist name-calling should be reported to police. Is that a crime? If you aren't sure if a hate crime occurred, call 911. We're here to help. That's the highest, best use of police resources in Seattle. Uh, And that says nothing of the story out last week about uh, Department of Justice kicking around the idea of suspending habeas corpus. But there's more context to the story than was reported. And we'll start there with our friend Andy McCarthy, as I mentioned, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, contributing editor at National Review, author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Andy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, it's my pleasure. So um, you uh, wrote about this in National Review, that story about... uh, uh, the the prospect of uh, yeah yeah the prospect of suspending habeas corpus effectively and uh, suggesting that uh, it wasn't a, a uh, an autocratic gambit afoot by Attorney General Barr it's a little bit more complicated than that yeah I mean first of all the the um, just so everyone understands the the executive branch does not have the authority to suspend habeas corpus. So we weren't, what was not on the table and what was not being talked about was the prospect of arresting people without charges and detaining them. What they were mainly trying to deal with was, number one, what do you do with people who you arrest for charges, that is, with probable cause in the regular criminal justice system under circumstances where because of social distancing requirements and the other things that you were just outlining uh, in your introductory remarks, it's not the easiest thing right now for courts to convene, although I think they are uh, able to arraign people who are arrested to, you know, to get them presented to judges. But, you know, grand juries at the moment are not able to meet, at least in many places. Uh, Juries can't be convened because of these requirements. So it makes it very hard for the uh, justice system to operate and function as it normally does. As a result of that, Congress asked the Justice Department to make some proposals for what do we do in order to confront the, the various problems that we have that are infringing necessarily on people's constitutional rights to be presented uh, on charges, to have a speedy trial, to have a speedy indictment, and all that jazz. And the Justice Department made some proposals that would actually not have empowered the executive branch. They would have empowered the judiciary. The idea is that the chief justice of the Supreme Court would be able to issue a finding that there were emergency conditions uh, in effect that would require the suspension of uh, the statute of limitations that applies to all federal offenses, and it would allow chief justices in all the different 93 districts, federal districts across the country, to 
issue basically interest of justice continuances that would extend the timeline for the Speedy Trial Act and stuff like that. So the justice, it was not a power grab by the Justice Department. They were responding to a request from Congress. They weren't trying to empower Trump. They were actually empowering the courts. And the whole thing, I think, was much ado about nothing because built into what the Justice Department was proposing, which, by the way, couldn't they couldn't just implement this. It would have to be enacted by Congress. Right. But built into it was the idea that as soon as the emergency conditions were over, the courts would issue a finding that they were over and we would go right back to normal. So this was always going to be very temporary and, and driven by conditions on the ground. The whole thing was just blown way out of proportion. Well, uh, shame on me for accepting. I believe it was the Associated Press reporting at face value when when I noticed it last week. But it, it also um, the, the so in addition to um, the troubling nature of the reporting, the other thing that's troubling to me is all of those daily briefings since that story came out. And uh, the implication that this that what I described was afoot rather than what was actually happening, as you yeah. d- detailed, not a single question was asked about it. Not a single question. Yeah, not you're you're quite right about that. And I don't understand. You know, I, I'm sure I don't want to I'm not taking a slap at the uh, at the president now or the people around him um, because, man, they have other things on their minds and they're dealing with something that's just awful to have to deal with. But I, I have to think that. If it was raised enough that it got the president's attention that this was a story that they would have done, even if the media hadn't asked about it, they would have done what they could to slap it down. Maybe they, maybe you and I think this was a bigger deal than than they did. I, I don't well, well, know, but I think you're quite right. I'm very surprised that didn't get more play. Yeah, it speaks to, um, I guess, I don't know, the single-mindedness and the empty-headedness uh, at the same time of uh, so many members of the D.C. press corps, as far as I'm concerned. I wanted to get to your take, though, um, more generally, because we're in a time there's a lot of there's some talk, not as much as I would like, about the balancing of competing interests, our uh, public health and our economic health. There's also our individual liberties as enshrined in the Constitution. There hasn't been that much talk about that. And there's some things that police have done at the uh, local level, including in Chicago, where they broke up a funeral that I inside a church. Uh, I find uh, I find troubling. And I wonder if uh, you're concerned at all about this uh, balance that we need to strike in this pan- during this pandemic. Yeah, I'm really concerned about it because. Even in the best of times, Dan, I think that mistakes are always made in these situations because they're emergency conditions. They don't lend themselves easily to calm deliberation about how do we balance the ever-present tension between civil liberties and security. And what you inevitably get, even again in the best of times, is some hotheads who you know, use their authority in what I think is a draconian way. I think we, we could all agree in hindsight is a draconian way. Um, and I don't think these are the best of times. I think that w- what frightens me listening to you summarize these different uh, things that have happened where it certainly seems like the authorities have gone way overboard and in a very politicized way, uh, broken up uh, assemblies uh, of people associating for perfectly good reasons, even if it's not a good idea to be associating right now. I mean, it just seems they've been very, very heavy handed. And you have to wonder if the reason they feel they can do that and the reason that you have 
a number of these incidents uh, floating up to the floor is that the country has changed in ways that we don't always like to think that it's changed. I mean, if they weren't politically comfortable right. with the idea of doing the kind of stuff that you're talking about, they wouldn't do it, right? So they have to feel like they're answering to some kind of a constituency. And I just wonder if that constituency isn't bigger and more strident than we sometimes like to think it is. No, I think that's a, a, the operative point. I think that's exactly right. Politicians aren't doing something that, generally speaking, that the overwhelming majority are opposed to. They're doing things that uh, the majority or uh, a working majority, a governing majority uh, or plurality are uh, supportive of or conditioned to accept or some combination of the two. I think that's absolutely what's happening. And it is a bit frightening. He is Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, Southern District of New York, contributing editor at National Review and author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Andy, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, it's my pleasure. Take care. You too. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show now not a lot of time was spent on our economic health at uh tuesday night's COVID task force briefing with president trump but uh the president did mention that uh, he is interested in a round numbers, $2 trillion infrastructure bill to uh, fund roads and bridges. We've heard this before, right? And why now? And how would we finance it? Why now? Because interest rates are basically zero and we can finance it long term, largely interest rate free, argued the president. So we have a zero interest rate, essentially. And I said, wouldn't this be a great time to borrow money at zero interest rate and really build our infrastructure like we can do it. So the plan was the Republicans had a plan of about 750. Uh, I would say they were where at seven, five. What you had, the Democrats were a little less than a trillion dollars. The Republicans were a little bit less than that. And I'm suggesting two trillion dollars. We redo our roads, our highways, our bridges. We fix up our tunnels, which are many of them in bad shape. And we really do a job on our infrastructure. Our friend Steve Moore, writing in The Spectator with uh, Ed Fulner, former head of the Heritage Foundation, says uh, right now what we need to do is get people back to work in the private sector. America is the business capital of the world, they write, with 26 million men and women owning and operating small and medium-sized firms. Millions will crash into bankruptcy with a prolonged lockdown, regardless of the federal government's business loan rescue program. Revenues are the oxygen source of any small business, and most have seen their customer base fall by half, even to zero through forced closures. The economic carnage is avoidable. The White House, they say, is working on a plan with respect to gradual opening of the economy, and that needs to proceed more so than another eight to ten week lockdown that's being argued for by the likes of Bill Gates and Dr. Ezekiel Manuel with a two trillion dollar infrastructure plan. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of Trumponomics. Steve, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. 
Hi, Dan. By the way, we wrote that actually, unfortunately, before Trump extended the deadline now to uh, April 30th. Like the point I'm making is if we keep this economy shut down much longer than that, we're talking about real carnage, real damage that will be potentially significantly higher than the toll from the uh, coronavirus. I mean, this is a tough decision, but you can't hold a $20 trillion economy in a shutdown mode for long. It doesn't matter how many trillions of dollars the Federal Reserve uh, prints. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter how many of these loan programs and government aid programs that we pass, which are now $2 trillion. Trump wants another $2 trillion, and Pelosi wants another $2 trillion on top of that. Let's go back to what the president proposed uh, last night, $2 trillion in shovel-ready projects. Your reaction? We're not going to solve this problem by having massive amounts of government spending. Right? We just did a $2 trillion spending bill. So what Barry Kudlow, Steve Forbes, Outlapper and others are saying is, hey, let's do the next tranche for suspending the payroll tax for things. You know, here's an idea, Dan. It doesn't cost anything, okay? How about a blanket immunity from lawsuits for every employer in America for the rest of the year so they can get workers back on the job without the risk of lawsuits? Now, if workers don't want to go back on the job, that's fine. But, you know, I can't tell you how many employers say, I want to get my people back, they're ready to go, but I'm very worried about lawsuits. That's a simple thing. It would cost nothing, and it would get a lot of uh, millions more Americans back on the job. So there are a lot of deregulation things that could be done to facilitate getting the economy back on its feet. I was just looking last night. There's a rule of thumb in economics. It's not a hard and fast rule. It's pretty accurate. That for every one percentage point increase, in the unemployment rate, you get that's associated with about 10,000 additional deaths per year for things like suicide, depression, drug Str- Stress-related, right. Yeah, yeah stress-related things. So think about this. Let's just say that's true. It may be a little bit off by 20% one way or the other. We had a month ago a 3.5% unemployment rate. I remember that. In, in February, the unemployment rate was 3.5%. Uh, Goldman Sachs, and I very rarely would quote Goldman Sachs, but others are saying the same thing, that the unemployment rate could go as high as 25%. Right. Now, let's just say that that's true. That's a 22 percentage point increase in the unemployment rate. But if my math is right, that, that's the equivalent of 200,000 additional deaths just from raising the unemployment rate. So I'm not even sure we're saving lives by keeping the, the economy shut down uh, th- this long. Plus, you're talking about millions of businesses that will fail. Uh, again, it doesn't matter how much of this aid goes out. And by the way, that's another fiasco, Dan. You know, we, because of Pelosi and many Republicans as well, it can't be partisan here, they converted what was supposed to be a loan program for businesses to get over the hump for the next six months into a program where if you keep all your employees on the payroll, we convert that loan program into a grant. grant. It's just free money. And and so you know what's happening right now? The system is being completely flooded with applications from healthy businesses. I can't tell you how many uh, people are calling me now saying, hey, I'm going to sign up for this free money. I wasn't going to fire anybody anyway. Now the government's giving me three or four or five million dollars for free. I mean, this is such insanity, folks, what is going on in Washington. So, no, I'm not in favor of spending another $2 trillion. The provision, wasn't there, there a provision with that, uh, that forgivable loan program with businesses less than 500 employees where you had to show a 50% reduction in revenue first quarter 2020 over first quarter 2019 to qualify? But, yeah, there's provisions like that. But there are a lot of, that's going to be a lot of businesses. But a lot of those businesses are yeah. not going to 
um, you know, look, yeah. the problem is every business is, except for a few, the supermarkets doing pretty well and uh, Amazon's Amazon. doing pretty well, yeah, but right. every business is, is hurting. What I have a problem is, oh, we're going to pick this, you know, airlines, we're going to give them money. Boeing, we're going to give them money. This industry, we're going to give money. Now there's talk about the oil and gas industry. And by the way, I'm, I'm a big fan of that industry. But where do you stop with this? I mean, who doesn't get it? If everybody's getting a subsidy and aid, then... <laughs> Yeah, well, economy is going to collapse. Yeah, here, here's something else, too. I want to get to this. Luigi Zingales and, uh, and Ahmed Saru from Stanford, uh, Zingales from the University of Chicago, as you know, with this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal paper for which you contribute about the monetary policy side. The four trillion dollars that the Fed got that is, that they believe, uh, that, you know, they believe they can leverage 10 to one. So that's four point four five uh, trillion dollars to companies. Yeah. Um, that sum is more than all U.S. commercial and industrial paper outstanding as of the end of 2019, plus all the new corporate bonds issued during 2019. So if all that capital is deployed by the Fed, then you're crowding out private capital. Yes. Yep. 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 This is it. And this is really dangerous. Because, and by the way, I've been in favor of the Fed um, injecting the economy with, with, with dollar liquidity. I think that's a smart thing to do. We don't. There's no inflation in the economy. If anything, there's deflation right now. So we're not worried about uh, inflation, and it's not it's not an inappropriate thing. It's a smart thing to do for the Fed to be injecting liquidity into the economy now. But that's very different from what you're talking about, Dan, where now the, the federal government, uh, I mean, the Federal Reserve Board, is essentially operating like an like a, uh, investment bank. And they're deciding where, where they're going to invest in, and oh, this market and that market. That we're in the chart, we're in the Fed's charter. Right? Is that allowed? I mean, it's not. You know, the Fed is uh, is an independent agency that doesn't have virtually any oversight. Uh, people even say that the president can't can't. Uh, there's a big debate about whether the president could could fire the uh, the uh, chairman Powell. He talked about that, but my point is. Look, this is extraordinary powers that the government is taking over. I would I would refer people to my piece on the Washington Examiner right now. It's called Atlas is Shrugging. And we are seeing the most massive increase in governmental power, maybe in your and my lifetime. Uh, I live in Maryland where they won't even like, go out and play golf by yourself. Yeah, same <laughs> I mean, here. The rules are yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. And they're locking up the tennis courts. You can't do anything. Uh, the government's telling when you can go out, how, why you can go out. Uh, curfews, Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of Trumponomics. Steve, thanks for joining us. Let's take back our freedoms. All right, William Wallace there. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> okay, bye. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Chuck Ross over at Daily Caller uh, reporting yesterday. Rick Scott, senator from Florida, wants to investigate whether the U.S. should continue funding the World Health Organization. The U.S. provides approximately 15 percent of the WHO's budget. China gives two-tenths of one percent. And uh, for that two-tenths of one percent, what have we seen from the WHO in uh, full color over the last uh, several weeks? For that two-tenths of a percent, the Chinese communists get the World Health Organization to repeat their propaganda and otherwise run interference for them. And uh, it is uh, a time post-pandemic 
to uh, make some reassessments about some of these international organizations that are conferred legitimacy. Maybe they don't deserve certain, certainly some of the medical professionals that operate as special advisors to the WHO and so forth. They're experts in their fields. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm talking the political brass, just like the political brass at NATO, the political brass at uh, the U.N. leaves a lot to be desired, doesn't it? So should we be uh, carrying the freight while we're underwriting the distribution of Chinese communist propaganda? It doesn't seem to make sense to me. And to that end, uh, all of the 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 uh, stories about uh, the U.S. passing the death toll that China experienced. Well, that's very much in dispute. It's just worth noting. Radio Free Asia reported residents of Wuhan, the capital of the Hubei province where the virus originated, say the number of deaths is not uh, 3,300. It's closer to 42,000 just in Wuhan. Um, Okay, so, you know, that's off by a factor of 13x. Um, That's one estimate. Uh, Daily Mail reported that Boris Johnson and his team doubted uh, uh, they doubted uh, the Chinese count uh, of cases of 81,000, saying that China was probably off by a factor of 40. So as in more like 3.2 million cases. Who knows? The problem is that we don't, and China's less than forthcoming on it. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Bill Gertz, who is national security correspondent at The Washington Times and author of Deceiving the Sky, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. Bill, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be on the show. Well, what about that? Why don't we just start there before we get to your uh, very compelling piece about the, the virus itself in Wuhan and its, its origination. The, uh, the idea of the WHO's uh, uh, facility with being a front for Chinese propaganda. Yes, uh, China has worked uh, behind the scenes to basically take over the World Health Organization. Uh, The first thing they did was they had an Asian-American woman who ran it, and she was very pro-China. And then uh, Dr. Tedros, who took over, is uh, a Communist Party member from Ethiopia. And, uh, you know, the the WHO had, had one job, and that was to deal with global pandemics, and they utterly failed. Um, that's because it's an organization that all they wanted to do was hold conferences and pay high salaries to all of their officials. And uh, uh, in a crisis, they, they really failed. And I agree with you 100%. There should be a reevaluation of that organization. And clearly, they should strip uh, Chinese influence from that, that organization because in the beginning, uh, they refused to declare it a pandemic, even though the virus was spreading to several continents uh, they also tried to say what a great job <clears throat> China had done in uh, uh, handling the outbreak, which was also a lie. I mean, they, the Chinese are just yesterday, Dr. Burks at the White House was saying that uh, uh, the reason uh, the U.S. was slow to respond was because they were getting bad data from China about the outbreak. And in addition to that, as we saw just uh, uh, earlier this week, uh, maybe the interview was over the weekend, but the uh, senior official at the World Health Organization won't even take a question from an interviewer about Taiwan and what Taiwan did uh, and whether or not there are lessons to be learned. I mean, you'll have people talk that uh, they're willing to talk about uh, Singapore, or South Korea, but they won't talk about Taiwan as if it doesn't exist because China wishes didn't independently. 
It was dis- disgraceful. Yeah, actually, the, the World Health Organization official hung up on the Taiwanese reporter. Right. Um, this is a reflection of the problem of what I've you know been writing about for the last 30 years, that, that uh, China, despite our efforts to try to moderate them, uh, remains a nuclear-armed communist dictatorship uh, that, with the sole purpose of perpetuating the rule of the Communist Party of China. And it, they don't care about the people of Wuhan or the people of China. They care about making the government of China and the Communist Party of China look good in the face of a, a world pandemic. When we come back with uh, Bill Gertz, I want to get your reaction to uh, Peter Beinart's piece in The Atlantic that says we've got it all wrong with China, President Trump does, as well as get to your piece about uh, Chinese researchers near the uh, Wuhan animal market that has generated so much attention. More with Bill Gertz. National Security Correspondent at The Washington Times, author of Deceiving the Sky, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy, right after this. This is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Bill Gertz. He is National, Cor- National Security Correspondent excuse me, at the Washington Times, author of the book Deceiving the Sky, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. Bill in The Atlantic, uh, Peter Beinart writes that uh, all of those saying that China unleashed this plague on the world and China needs to be held accountable, they've got it backwards. The relationship between – this is Beinart's words now – the relationship between America and China was not normal before COVID-19. It was in rapid decline, and that decline has left Americans more vulnerable to the disease – the lesson of this plague isn't that America should stop cooperating with China. It's that America must rebuild the public health cooperation that the Trump administration helped destroy. This is another example of the blame America first mentality of American liberals. It's not China, according to this author. It's the United States that's the problem. It's clear that the Trump administration has recognized that this 40-year experiment of basically kowtowing to China and trading with it and ignoring its theft of intellectual property, ignoring its arms sales to rogue states like North Korea and Iran, has been an utter failure. The idea that this is going to create a moderate communist state has been an utter failure, and the people who support that policy are continuing to promote it. President Trump and his administration are absolutely correct in refocusing American policy towards China by saying, look, we're not going to be ripped off anymore, and we're going to expose what has taken place by this regime in Beijing. Do you think President Trump is striking the right tone when he tries to balance his uh, tough talk on China and and all the silly controversy around Mm -hmm. calling it the China virus or the Wuhan virus or whatever by saying, you know, I had a good call with President Xi the other night. We talked about uh, the virus, a good relationship with President Xi. We did a big trade deal. We want to do more deals in the future. Is is that the right balance, or does there need to be more pulling back of the veneer and really going at China, the, the, the jugular of the Chinese communists? Washington produces one thing, and that's politics. President's a politician. I wrote about this in my Washington Times column last week. President is trying to preserve the trade deal, and we've seen this Chinese disinformation campaign to try to blame the virus on the U.S. and the mm-hmm. U.S. Army spreading it in Wuhan This is an indication, according to officials I talked to, that China is preparing to renege on the uh, big trade deal, which was a big win for the U.S. The Chinese were were really forced into the deal. 
they got to buy $250 billion worth of U.S. goods, and the White House fears that because of the pandemic, China will pull out of it, which is very characteristic of the way they deal with agreements. Uh, they only believe that agreements are valid at the time they're signed. So the president's kind of treading lightly between slamming the Chinese for their activities, including the disinformation campaign, and trying to preserve the trade deal that was signed in January. Uh, Tell us uh, about uh, this uh, lead uh, or key researcher in Wuhan who uh, you write about in The Washington Times and your piece had, had, uh, uh, along with other researchers, isolated more than 2,000 new viruses, including bat coronaviruses, and were working on them just a few miles from that animal market in Wuhan that was been identified as the epicenter of the uh, outbreak. Yeah, this is an exclusive and important story. The Chinese propaganda line has been, they have not discussed openly uh, the cause of this pandemic. We know that it came from Wuhan. Uh, They try to claim that it was uh, part of a wild animal market. The reality is that there is... uh, was a state-run video produced which identified a key researcher on viruses. And he's the guy who was going into caves, getting exposed to bat urine and bat feces and collecting viruses. He had collected some 300 animal viruses, including bat coronaviruses, and he studied them at an unsecure laboratory in Wuhan called the Wuhan Center for Disease Control. This is different than the more secure lab known as the Wuhan Institute of Virology. There's growing amount of evidence that this virus didn't just jump from some animal at the market, but that it was somehow an escaped virus from there. And China has stonewalled international questioning about what they know about the origins of this virus. And I think there needs to be massive international pressure on China to say what happened so that we can find out what happened and mitigate the effects of this pandemic. Now, you uh, you mentioned in your piece that the uh, the uh, researcher who wasn't wearing protective gear in the cave when he was collecting these samples you were describing did uh, self-quarantine for 14 days, but, but it seems to me you're suggesting he could be patient zero? I don't think he's patient zero, but I think it's possible, and some people have suggested that, but... Uh, First of all, uh, this, this researcher's name is Tian uh, Junhua, has disappeared. Uh, he has not surfaced. He did take part in a couple of Chinese-sponsored studies on the, the new Wuhan virus, and uh, one in January and I think one in March, so he's still around. But his name has disappeared from the uh, Wuhan CDC website. So that certainly raises questions. Uh, China's good and, at making and, people disappear. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Any Anybody that criticizes the regime, including a number of uh, heroic doctors in Wuhan, have disappeared, gone into the uh, Chinese gulag, no doubt. Well, and, and you know, and this, this goes back to, you know, questions about this relationship between academics and researchers in America and China uh, writ large. There's a story in uh, Yahoo News I saw about... Uh, a researcher that was identified and stopped at a De- Detroit Metro airport by um, by U.S. Customs and Border Protection. He was a Chinese biologist with three vials labeled antibodies that uh, one, upon inspection, uh, the, the the report is the materials uh, contained within the vials may, may have been viable MERS and SARS materials. And he was going to make contact with a researcher at a U.S. institute. Now, doing research on dangerous uh, things is not necessarily um, nefarious, but it certainly does raise questions, particularly when it's with respect to nationals who are uh, who are, are nationals of adversarial countries. 
Yes, uh, it's it's significant. I saw that story. Um, the thing is, uh, those two viruses are the only two viruses that this Wuhan CDC was not working on because they were considered extremely dangerous. Um, so what happened was they had a bunch of bat viruses and mouse and uh, rodent viruses and, and insect viruses at this institute, and either some person or perhaps a corrupt uh, worker there sold one of these uh, lab animals to the wild food market, and that could have uh, set off this global pandemic. The point, again, is we don't know because mm -hmm. the Chinese are stonewalling, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and a number of top U.S. officials have made that point, notably Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who has frequently called on the Chinese to uh, tell what they know about this virus. Very interesting. He is Bill Gertz, National Security Correspondent at The Washington Times, author of the book Deceiving the Sky, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. And I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show uh, his piece about uh, this Chinese researcher we were just discussing, uh, an exclusive. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Down on the corner, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. After our conversation with Bill Gertz, maybe uh, he and I will go see this uh, this movie together if it uh, if it makes it uh, onto a streaming service or a theater. If the theaters make it out of the pandemic, Hollywood Reporter reporting the first coronavirus-related movie has been shot last month in Vancouver and is now being shopped to streaming services. Jim Treacher uh, writing about it at pjmedia.com, Jam's Media, and comparing it to the uh, backlash after 9-11, where, of course, uh, the Hollywood types were concerned that the real victims of 9-11 were not uh, those who died at the World Trade Center, but rather uh, Muslim Americans. A treacher writing, now we're seeing the same thing with the virus that's currently crippling the entire world. COVID-19 originated in the People's Republic of China, and the ruling Chinese Communist Party allowed it to spread, lied to the rest of the world about it. Still are, I would add, as we just discussed with Gertz. Uh, they direct, they're directly responsible for everything that's happening to you right now, but the real victims, according to um, these movie makers, are um, Asian Americans who are being discriminated against. The uh, director... Tells how the Hollywood Reporter director, Mustafa Keshfari, uh, explores the Chinese virus, dis Chinese virus discrimination in his trapped in an elevator drama called Corona. The idea here's the director. The idea came to me when I was in an elevator reading news about Chinese tourists being attacked. And I thought I was going to make a movie in an elevator. Listen to the uh, characters uh, in this ensemble cast. Forget the actors for a minute. Uh, the uh, trapped in an elevator black elevator repairman, millennial woman, white supremacist in a wheelchair, blonde wife, building owner, and an indebted tenant. Uh, the director uh, continues, it was uh, then known as the Chinese virus, but now everyone can have it, so it's not just one racist problem. Now the human race has to come together to defeat the virus. Did anybody ever say that uh, only one race could get it? That's we're so upset with uh, Chinese misinformation because of precisely that uh, it affects the entire world. And uh, we understand that viruses do. I mean, it's just such utter nonsense. Good Lord. Um, I assume one of the streaming services will pick it up just for its uh, political correctness quotient. 
the political correctness score, if you will, uh, if not for the quality of the filmmaking or the premise or the plot or the character development. Uh, I think you could probably skip Corona, but what you shouldn't skip is No Safe Spaces. That's the number one political documentary of 2019 produced by Dennis Prager, my colleague, our friend, Adam Carolla as well, that reveals how America has become a dangerous place to speak your mind and share ideas in places like social media, on places uh, like college campuses, uh, of course, in Hollywood. The streaming services, uh, who would probably be interested in Corona, weren't interested in nosafespaces.com, of course. They don't want you to see it, which is why nosafespaces.com was uh, set up to allow you to watch for a limited time, limited time only. You can uh, watch at nosafespaces.com with your family during this downtime. Uh, make good use of your time. Get uh, more informed rather than so much of the dreck on these streaming services, and support a film that shares your American values. Again, for a limited time, watch No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. President Trump uh, mentioning in his briefing yesterday in conversations with New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, de Blasio wasn't asking for ventilators or masks. He was asking for medical professionals, shortage of medical professionals uh, in New York City as they deal with uh, the largest uh, outbreak of the virus in the country. Trying to put it in perspective for you know non-medical professionals like ourselves, I thought uh, this piece by uh, Dr. Paul Dorenwend, who is the Assistant Chief of Emergency Medicine at Kaiser Permanente in San Diego, uh, it was in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. Nurses are the heroes of corona, uh, are the coronavirus heroes. How critical are nurses to the capacity of the health system? The number of nurses staffing the hospital determines its capacity. An absence because of a sick call or child care closes three beds. Understaffed floor beds result in boarding in the emergency department, and that creates a waiting room backup, for example. Just putting that in perspective, one nurse being absent for whatever reason can close three beds. Since we're talking so much about non-human infrastructure in the healthcare system, we lose sight of the importance of the human infrastructure a little bit, just in terms of trying to translate how important particular staffing is to the ability to treat these patients. And he he explains in more detail, which I'm sure our next guest can as well, but from a, the doctor's perspective, it's nice sort of the professional courtesy. If you wonder who actually sticks and swabs into the noses of worried patients, it's the nurses. They're on the front line, face-to-face, in the six-foot danger zone. They're collecting the data that the epidemiologists use to track the outbreak, moving in and out of negative pressure rooms, putting protective equipment on and off, and taking it off. Nurses are caring for elderly patients who are severely ill and sometimes crashing. The nurses marinate in risk as they spread, as they spend the greatest amount of time with the patient. They draw blood, obtain samples, provide oxygen, and steadfastly tend to their patients' needs. They are by the doctor's side as we intubate patients struggling to breathe. Once that patient is transferred to the intensive care unit, it's the nurses who do the mundane and the heroic to make sure the patient survives the illness or dies more comfortably. For more perspective on this, we're pleased to be joined by Molly Erickson. She's a registered nurse. She's also the director of advanced practice providers 
at Rush University Medical Center. Molly, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for what you do. I feel compelled to thank you after that uh, wonderful op-ed by the doctor from San Diego. And, and, and you know, the interesting thing about this is uh, we talked about this before, as I'm sure you have within your professional circles. We had a nursing shortage for our healthcare system prior to the pandemic. So it must be that much more acute now. Here at Rush, we have a tremendous nursing workforce, and we've been able to mobilize nurses across our healthcare system to really meet the needs of our patients. And we have a continuous, with our command center, continuous staffing office that's assessing um, our staffing needs. Um, and we've been able to mobilize our nurses to really ensure that our patients are getting the highest quality of care. What about the rate of hospitalization? Has that changed at all? You know, we, we're seeing actually a decreased number of patients in our emergency room, um, which I think really reflects the appropriate utilization of the healthcare system and patients, you know, successfully doing the mitigation techniques. Um, we have, we do, of course, we've met the capacity of our intensive care unit, but we were able to ex- expand our intensive care footprint, so open additional ICUs um, and increase our capacity. So at present here at Rush, we do have um, ventilator and ICU capacity um, that hasn't been met yet. How, how are you all communicating with other hospitals in Chicago and in, and in the suburbs to uh, make sure that uh, the resources available are being maximized? It really is a, a group effort. I'll tell you, it's a united front. Um, we're communicating with them daily. We have a hospital in- incident command center here at Rush and members of our hospital incident command center have daily communications um, with um, the hospitals in the area and nationally. In addition to that, at Rush, we're an enterprise and have um, Rush Oak Park and Rush Copley um, as part of our healthcare system. Um, and we communicate with them regarding our practices um, and are definitely sharing information with other institutions um, because really it's a united front to ensure that we're meeting the evolving needs of these patients. So what is what is the most salient challenge for you and, and maybe for the system? I assume they're one of the same at present. You know, I think one of the greatest challenges is, is the rate at which the information changes. You know, this is really um, an evolving pandemic. And as we learn more about the virus, the recommendations change and making sure that we are communicating those in a clear and efficient manner to the front lines and ensuring that they have the most up-to-date information. Um, And we've been able to work with our communications team here and and develop um, different strategies for communication to ensure that they're being communicated clearly. I don't know how intimately you're involved in the testing piece of this. Um, Certainly your uh, nurses are. But um, but but one of the things that uh, Governor Pritzker has said is, uh, you know, we're capped at 250 tests a day. Uh, there have been other states that have uh, sought uh, relief from that cap so they could test more people if they have additional capacity. And it seems like with the number of tests from Abbott and so forth being distributed and the uh, the, the, the better th- uh, thorough uh, the, the throughputs that more tests can be analyzed than maybe were the case four weeks ago. I just wonder if, if we're maximizing the testing capacity that we have or seeking relief from federal government mandates to the extent we need to in order to do that. You know, I've actually been quite intimately involved in the testing here at Russia. I helped st- stand up a drive-through testing option as well as a, a outpatient controlled entry clinic option. Um, and I'm happy to say that we have a variety of avenues of testing patients for COVID-19 here at Rush um, and have been able to not only meet the needs of our patients within our healthcare system, but partner with other institutions to ensure that their testing capabilities increase their capacity to test patients at their institutions as well. Um, and so I think that that's something that as this pandemic has evolved, evolved we've been able to increase our capacity to test. Um, and at present, we, we do have the capacity to, to test all the patients at, at, 
with amongst our health system that are in need. But 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 I mean, are you bumping up against that 250 cap? Is that an issue for people so in the, Chicago? I think the 250 cap is probably in, in relation to um, the Illinois Department of Public Health testing sites. Um, they might that might be their capacity at their sites at for the Illinois Department of Public Health, but. Um, we have both internal testing capabilities as well as external capa- yeah, internal, testing capabilities. Right, right. So our our ability um, to test is much greater, um, and we've, we, our hospital incident command that meets really 24/7, but we have formal meetings several times a day. Um, part of that um, is our infectious disease team, and we have daily updates on on their testing um, capacity, and and that has been successfully expanding, which is wonderful. Um, and like I said, at present, we have the, the capacity to test um, all the patients that are in need here amongst across our health system um, and have also been able to partner um, with all their um, health care systems in the Chicagoland area to ensure that they're able to meet uh, their testing needs. So I think that that was initially, um, you know, on the onset of this pandemic, a large concern. And I think that the, the um, healthcare system has really been able to rise to meet that testing concern. Uh, Amy Anderson, who's also an RN, she's also a nursing professor at North Texas University. She uh, has some recommendations as well. One of the things she says is medical professionals need to be able to work without fear of retaliation or personal liability. State officials should revise their medical liability laws accordingly. She also talks about work, workers' comp and even hazard pay for those in high-risk units. Are, are, is that the liability piece or the pay piece? Is that anything that's been uh, discussed at Rush as well? You know, I think one of the um, – sorry, that I start to lose track of the days just because it's been – Yeah, no, I understand. Uh, we're, 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 a little, we're a little over a month into this process. Um, so it's, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint, as I like to say. But um, I think it was two days ago that some very important legislation with regards to health care was passed um, by that, uh, President Trump. And, for instance, one of the things that it allowed is for CRNAs um, – gave them greater um, scope of practice in um, not the necessity for strict of oversight by a physician. And I think um, legislation like that is extremely important in this time um, to allow um, healthcare providers to really practice to their full scope and, and training and, and to meet the, the not evolving needs of our patients. Um, so I think that we that there is more peace about that within our institution and nationally as we re- receive the support of both, um, you know, our institutions and the government. She is Molly Erickson. She's a registered nurse. She's also the director of advanced practice providers at Rush University Medical Center here in Chicago. Molly, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck to you. Stay safe and tell uh, your folks to stay safe as well. Thank you. We really appreciate the time this morning. Continue to wash your hands and practice social distancing, please. No problem. Well, we certainly want safe spaces from coronavirus, but we don't want safe spaces when it comes to free thought and free speech in America. And uh, during this time of shelter in place, it's a great opportunity to check out No Safe Spaces, the number one political documentary of 2019. You remember that's the political documentary that's put together by uh, our friend and my colleague, Dennis Prager, as well as Adam Carolla, that reveals how America has become a dangerous place to speak your mind and share ideas on college campuses, on social media, of course, in Hollywood. You can watch for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com. Again, Hollywood has uh, done its best to limit the distribution of this film. I saw it in theaters back in 2019, but uh, you can't get it on the streaming services. You can get it for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. Check it out with the family.
a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, Joe Biden is on CNN yesterday uh, trying to stay in the thick of things, and every time that he goes on CNN from his Delaware compound, uh, Andrew Cuomo's poll numbers rise, and I suspect that happened again after this performance. And in order to avoid that, those very high numbers, we have to do at least several things. One, we have to uh, depend on what the president's going to do right now, and first of all, he has to uh, tell... Uh, uh, wait till the cases before anything happens. Look, the whole idea is he's got to get in place things that were shortages of. Uh, wait till the cases what to get in place things that were shortages of. The whole idea is we have to wait to see what the president does right now. If you emphasize now, that uh, obviates the meaning of the statement that I don't know. I'm just going to sit here and wait to see what President Trump does. That's my plan. For a more on Joe Biden's political fortunes at this moment, uh, again, against the backdrop of an ABC Washington Post survey that we talked a little bit about yesterday that has basically a statistical dead heat. Uh, but importantly, with Joe Biden suffering from an anticipated enthusiasm gap with respect to President Trump, uh, we're pleased to be joined by Kurt Mills, senior writer for the American Conservative. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yes. Hi. You write about uh, Biden's campaign and uh, sort of open with whether or not it's uh, gone cold or his screen time from his uh, home in Delaware is enough to keep him in the mix. Right. Yeah. Obviously, this is scrambling the race, and the race is already pretty unusual. Uh, it's the presidential race between the two the, the two oldest nominees for president ever. Obviously, Biden's about five years older than the, than the president. Uh, and now it looks as if with the, the national, the de facto national lockdown, we may have a shorter campaign. And meanwhile, uh, you know, the president gets to address the nation from the Oval Office, and Biden has this sort of awkward position of having to address the country from his basement made all the more awkward by his uh, his struggle with to command the english language that's not helping yeah, either he's an old guy uh, and he's conceded that himself uh and biden always had this problem of his style is, is very poor for the sort of soundbite culture that developed in the 90s and it's particularly poor the sort of the 15-second clips that get cut and put into newscasts and Twitter and TikTok and stuff like that. He always stumbled over his words, and it's not getting better at 78 than it was at 58. It's a moment of acute exposure for that uh, shortcoming that's not necessarily in in his benefit right now. That all being said, I I do make a note of the piece that I do think that the Cuomo rumors are pretty overheated. I think it bears repeating that if Andrew Cuomo had entered the Democratic primary, uh, as he considered doing in 2016 and 2020, uh, he would not have been the nominee. He would have been an ulceran, just like Chainsley or Bill de Blasio or Steve Bullock. Biden won the nomination. Uh, he won the nomination on the support, you know, strong African-American support. Uh, and it's going to be very difficult to uh, wrest it from his fingers. It's interesting. You know, Cuomo and his brother, uh, Chris, did a little right. vaudeville routine on uh, Chris's show the other day where he yeah. did the customary thing, which is saying he has no interest in running for president. He's not running for president. 
but it, it right. seems like at, at minimum he's uh, behind the emergency glass, ready to be broken out if Joe Biden really falters, or if Bernie Sanders somehow can resuscitate his campaign into something approximating relevance and prevent Joe Biden from getting the necessary delegates to formally secure the nomination. Well, what about I mean, what about that latter scenario? Do you not buy that? Sanders was staying in the race anyways. He wants to get his message out. He's a career activist. He wanted it. And now that Biden is either stumbling or is seen as stumbling, uh, you know, it, it does make sense for Bernie to at least hang around. The problem is that, you know, just a, a lot of the delegates have already been allotted. You know, I mean, Texas and California have both voted. Uh, you know, uh, Sanders would need a strong uh, showing in a place like Florida, which is uh, not a state that just, that just postponed its primary. Uh, it's, it's not a state that Sanders does uh, particularly well in. It's, it's, it's more moderate, older, just not a recipe for Sanders' success there. I, I just think, like, I mean, this is very fun for guys like you and me and political reporters, but the chances of Biden not being the nominee unless, you know, he removed himself, which I don't think is likely he's going to be president for, for 50 to 70 years, um, I, I just think Biden's going to be the nominee. They're going to have to figure out how to work with it. Uh, well, well, uh, the uh, yeah, I mean, that, OK, that's that's yeah, that's probably the case. Um uh, but 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 you did you say Florida? Florida Florida did have their primary. Uh, right. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, yeah, but I mean, I just, my, my, sorry, I, I may have misspoke. My point is, there's just there's just not a lot of big states left. Right, 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 right. And, but and it's, it's not, just, but it's not about, but it's not about Biden. I mean, uh, Sanders catching up to Biden. It's just about uh, Sanders preventing Biden from getting to the magic number. That's true. San, Sanders uh, discussed. Uh, you know, he said this to the New York Times the other day. He's got 900 delegates. Biden's got 1,200 or something like that. Um, you know, it's just like Sanders requires a lot of enthusiasm. And uh, no matter how long they, they uh, you know, delay these primaries or whatever, um, like, like if, if no one's showing up to the polls but older, more traditional Democrats – like, let's say the bad news for Biden. I mean, again. bad news for yeah. Sanders. Good news for Biden. Right. Of course. Yeah. But, I mean, the stuff, the stuff going on with Biden, everybody knew this. Right. And, and, it, and it didn't matter in the primary. And people still sh- showed up for Biden because they knew his name. They liked him and they don't buy the narrative. And so I just think it's going to be very difficult for anyone to make up the ground. And I think we're, we're heading into the general. But I, I mean, look, I mean, is Biden's chances of being the nominee 100 percent? Certainly not. Um, and he's certainly not selling it up. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah we move from more, more likely than not. And so what, what about the, the story of Tara Reid, his former staffer that's accused him of sexual assault and hasn't uh, really generated any coverage from the D.C. press corps? Gee, I wonder why. Right. But uh, there may be once this clears and we're on the other side of the pandemic, there may be another opportunity to revisit Tara Reid's allegations. And, and I just wonder how that plays in terms of sort of uh, muddying the waters on issues like that between Trump and Biden. Um, well, there's definitely like a DC media blackout for whatever reason on the Reed allegation. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's, it's like, w- w- whatever you think about media bias, I think it's pretty clear that if the woman had been accusing a Republican politician, it was more likely to be picked up by the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, it's a very old allegation. Uh, she's coming forward at a time. Uh, when Biden's at maximum exposure, where where was she over? You know, during the primary, where was she all, all these years? Um, and and Biden's never been accused of anything like this. Um, of course, he's got the, the the touching problem, but everyone kind of concedes that it's like just weird stuff that he does, not necessarily of a predatory sexual nature. Hmm. Um, 
I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think yeah. the, the danger for Trump is that he has his own uh, litany of allegations, and so to just bring that up again. Um, well, I'm not saying Trump will bring it up, but I'm saying you know at some point yeah. it'll be revisited by somebody, even if it's uh, sort of a uh, uh, you know considered a non-mainstream outlet the way like that uh, crystal ball on uh, that Hill TV show Rising brought yep. brought Tara Reid to the yep. floor. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you can't discount this kind of thing. Uh, you know, occasionally things get picked up by not mainstream outlets and they, they hang in there for months. I, I would say like the big the big example of that would be the Riley Hunter story of John Edwards. Yeah, that right. Piece was in the, that, piece, that piece was in the Inquirer and nobody paid attention to it and Edwards' campaign kind of went on as it was, and then it really blew up in about four months after it came out, and it ended up being all true. So you can't discount it, uh, but uh, as of now, I don't think it's a, it's a serious factor that could derail him. He has Kurt Mill. Not, not, not to just belabor the point, I just... He's just, he's just going to be an nominee, and I just think we're going to see what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I, that's, I agree. That's certainly highly, much more likely than not. Yeah, I can see that point. Kurt Mills, senior writer for the American Conservative. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take yeah, care. Take care of yourself. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, yesterday, President Trump talked uh, not a lot about uh, matters economic, but uh, he did go into some somewhat of a riff on uh, one thing he does want to do. Seems like in the near term could be the next thing up. Two trillion dollar infrastructure plan to rebuild roads, bridges and the like. Shovel ready, shovel ready redux, arguably, although he made the point at his uh, briefing that uh, a lot of the money for those shovel-ready projects in the two th- after the 2008 uh, Great Recession didn't actually end up going to shovel-ready projects. And, of course, in his $2 trillion plan, he would make sure every penny is spent judiciously. Of course, no president can do that, but that's uh, what he is suggesting, a recognition of what failed 12 years ago, what won't fail this time under his plan. And this is the ideal time to do it. Why? Basically, zero interest rate. So we have a zero interest rate, essentially. And I said, wouldn't this be a great time to borrow money at zero interest rate and really build our infrastructure like we can do it? So the plan was the Republicans had a plan of about 750. Uh, I would say they were where at seven, five. You had the Democrats were a little less than a trillion dollars. The Republicans were a little bit less than that. And I'm suggesting two trillion dollars. We redo our roads, our highways, our bridges. We fix up our tunnels, which are many of them in bad shape, like coming into New York, as you know, really bad shape. And we really do a job on our infrastructure. To borrow from uh, famed Illinois and Everett Dirksen, uh, paraphrasing these days, you have to upgrade the denomination. A trillion here, a trillion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Richard Rubin, U.S. tax policy reporter for The Wall Street Journal focusing on the intersection of taxes, politics, and economics. Richard, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I know that uh, this was a discussion between the president and congressional leaders prior to the pandemic. There was always a general support voice for doing something in the area of infrastructure. All parties want to do it. All the leaders want to do it. What is the prospect for what uh, Trump is proposing and broad outlined? 
I mean, I think what's changed is that before this, there was always a dispute about how to pay for it. So there's some who want to raise the gas tax, there's some who want to raise other taxes. Um, and now some of those concerns are basically gone. No one wants to pay for anything. Sort of Currently, people are much more willing to borrow, um, partly because of the low interest rates, partly because no one really wants to raise taxes on anyone in the middle of this uh, economic moment. And, and so that at some level increases the chances that that something like this might happen. Um, but I think it's still far too early to say that it's a, a sure thing. Is that the, you know, with, with the talk of what the what uh, phase four will look like in terms of uh, disaster relief or stimulus, depending on your perspective? Is, is that most yeah. likely to be the area of phase four? I think that's an area. I think the other thing that we'll see, too, is, you know, you may see some efforts to do another round of payments to individuals. Um, you may see more efforts to provide more money to states and to hospitals. You, you may see some more um, sort of evaluations of what's worked and what hasn't in uh, phases one, two, and three, right? So as we get a better feel for which things are working or not working, where, you know, there's all this money out there for small businesses, right? So if that starts uh, uh, getting used up and there's a need to authorize more money, you might see that happen. I, I think it's in some ways it's it's kind of a little early to know exactly what the contours of phase four will be. In part because Congress is gone. They're you know talking, right. they're but they're scattered around the country and not back here in Washington. Is uh, are, are the initial timelines for the distribution of the individual checks as well as the setup for the SBA uh, loans slash forgivable loans for uh, employers with fewer than 500 employees, are, are those still on pace to be met? Yeah, everything is cranking, uh, is cranking right along. The individual payments, you know, they expect within a couple of weeks uh, to get the first batch out, particularly on the direct deposit side. Uh, on the small business payments, they're taking applications soon, I think, if not already. And so uh, they're trying to gear up really fast to get that money out the door uh, as, as best they can. And so uh, on all these, there's sort of a trade-off between speed and efficiency. The, the government is, is uh, you talk about shovel-ready, they're, they're shoveling money out the door. Uh, and uh, there's a sort of recognition that some of that is not going to necessarily go where it's intended. And, and that's kind of the real... Uh, balance that they're trying to strike here is is to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good and, and try and get as much money out to as many people and businesses as possible. Well, when we come back with Richard Rubin, U.S. tax policy reporter for The Wall Street Journal, I want to uh, talk about something that you've documented, which is helpful. The people that are left out of the uh, stimulus payments and this uh, $2 trillion disaster relief uh, package that could be up next if there's another one. More with Richard Rubin right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Richard Rubin, U.S. tax policy reporter for the Wall Street Journal in Washington, focusing on the intersection of taxes, politics, and economics. We were talking before the break about. Uh, those checks that are going out to individuals, twelve hundred dollars for each adult, under you know basically what under under a hundred grand and twenty four hundred bucks for a family under one hundred and fifty grand for a couple. 
and then $500 for each child under 17. The uh, nature of who's left out of those direct checks from the government, I mean, their money back, essentially, but nonetheless, who's left out and, and what that may portend for what's next. There's a couple groups that are left out. One is people without uh, work-eligible Social Security numbers, so that's going to include some undocumented immigrants who you know are working but certainly not but not eligible for these payments. It also excludes people who are dependents of others and are not children. And so that category includes a lot of you know anyone over 16, right? So it includes a lot of high school seniors and juniors, a lot of college students, and then also chunk of adult dependents. And, you know, you can think of some elderly and disabled people uh, who have claims as dependents on other people's tax returns. They're not going to be eligible for their own separate payments on this. And so I've certainly been hearing from a lot of those people in, in the past few days with, you know, concerns about trying to figure out why it is that they're not getting uh, their own payments. And then in the nonprofit sector, for those who serve, for example, adults with developmental disabilities, if they have fewer than 500 employees, then they can apply for the same SBA loans that uh, private sector business are applying for, correct? Yeah, there's some of that. There's also payroll tax breaks, right. uh, both delaying payments and um, the ability to get a sort of break on your payroll taxes effectively for keeping people on the payroll. There's And there's uh, paid leave tax credits against payroll. So there's a bunch of different options out there that are for nonprofits uh, as it, sort of in their operations as employers. And then obviously a lot of nonprofits do get money from state entities too. So to the extent that there's help for states, some of that is likely to filter down to nonprofits as well. Uh, what, what's your handle on how uh, individuals like Larry Kudlow, as well as some of the uh, more uh, free market oriented members of the House and Senate Republican caucuses, where they're at with sort of this balance that has to be struck between public health and economic health, even though the two are inextricably intertwined? Yeah, I, I think you've seen some, you know, back and forth. I think the president had made some noise, obviously, in the past uh, last week about trying to get the economy back open sooner than some of the public health experts had wanted, and he seems to have backed off of that. So, yeah, there's definitely a balance there, but there's also a recognition that, you know, if you kind of tell everyone, okay, go back to work, then we're right back where we were because, you know, with people getting infected because there's just not the ability yet to sort of massively test and figure out uh, who has this and who's already had it and is now immune and all the sort of systems one would need in place to kind of manage this outbreak aren't there. And so we've essentially still got the economy on, you know, on ice, on you know, coma or whatever, however you want to sort of think about it. It's, uh, we're, it's all sort of frozen right now. You know, it's interesting because you have some um, revisions to uh, the, the, the public health models in terms of infection rates and hospitalization rates and certainly lethality rates and, and just uh, aggregate numbers. Um, based on the reality on the ground. So, you know, as Tony Fauci explained yesterday, again, models are models. Then they get informed by the reality on the ground, and we adjust accordingly because they're uh, dynamic. Uh, they need to be because all the variables that are imputed and the assumptions that, that uh, those variables drive are dynamic. Uh, what about on the economic side? Is there an, a feeling that there's a real handle on the sort of damage uh, keeping America shut down for the next 30 days, for the next 60 days, for the next uh, uh, eight weeks, as Ralph Northam has uh, essentially done in Virginia at this point, a real un understanding of what kind of economic damage you're wreaking? No, because we haven't really done this before. Right. Um, and so there's not really a good model out there to, to know and to think through what the consequences are. You, you worry about the 
the long-term consequences. And I think so. I think what you see them trying to do is trying to kind of keep everything in place as much as possible. Keep uh, to the extent you can kind of keep people attached to the current employers they're attached to. Uh, right, you saw that in some of the retailers this week, laying furloughing people, but still keeping people on health benefits for a little bit longer. And some of that is sort of a recognition that when they're ready to ramp back up, they want to be able to have their ready pool of workers who know their systems and can come right back, as opposed to having to go hire a hundred thousand people. Uh, and you see that sort of multiplied throughout the the country. Of you know, the more we can. If not flip a switch, at least turn a dial and get back to where we were. That's that's kind of the ideal outcome in some ways. And so, so how do you sort of preserve that capacity, the productive capacity of the economy to kick back on? Well, at the same time, you, know, you have to. I think there's an awareness of the potential long-term damage if people are, you know, not able to make rent payments, not able to make utility payments, not able to make mortgage payments, and then that cascades up to to lenders and utility companies and, and everything, there's, you know, a, a real concern that you may not be able to freeze everything. And so there, there could be, you know, if people have non-coronavirus health issues that, that pop up or, um, you know, become disconnected from their jobs or, you know, suffer sort of other long-term consequences, you, you could have long-term effects. And I think that's what the, the aim is to try to prevent as much as possible is, to, to kind of make this this downturn, which is inevitable, uh, to try and make it short and, and make the recovery as quick as, as people can whenever that's ready to happen. Yeah, and, and, and with bills coming due and, uh, and, and, you know, businesses with, you know, not more than most businesses, not really more than 30 days of cash flow um, at small businesses, then uh, April, the next two weeks, is sort of... Uh, sort of a critical period on the public health side, as was discussed in some detail on Tuesday evening, but but also on the economic side, too, in terms of projecting what exactly we're dealing with here in terms of how uh, businesses and individuals are able to weather this economically. Yeah, it's just it, it's it's a crucial period right now for, you know, and, and these payments will start going out. The uh, beefed up unemployment payments will start going out to kind of plug the holes in people's budgets like this. This bill is going to start working. It's just a question of how quickly that can happen and. Um, you know, where the gaps are that emerge, right? I mean, there's just been a number of things that have happened both on the health front and on the economic front that people kind of hadn't quite thought about or quite predicted or quite planned for. And there's inevitably going to be more of those that pop up. And so that's just what to watch for is those unforeseen surprises and how quickly and nimbly policymakers can can adapt to that to uh, plug whatever gaps there are to kind of keep keep both the, the health side going and also kind of keep the economy ready to bounce back when, when it can. He is Richard Rubin, U.S. tax policy reporter for The Wall Street Journal in Washington, focusing on the intersection of taxes, politics, and economics. Richard, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Sure, thanks, The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, we close with uh, some joyous music again. Try and do as much of that as possible during these times. Uh, doesn't have to be all COVID talk all the time. Some uh, mental health break from 
all of the issues re- related to the viral outbreak, the economic impact, uh, impact on our liberties. You know, you take a break, mental health break from that, not just on the streaming services. Uh, and uh, so this comes to us. And, and it's the, the cool thing is all of these wonderful musicians and, and some very funny musicians, too, as we've uh, done with uh, playing some of the parody songs, parody slash PSAs, really. But um, the wonderful musicians, the uh, Mauricio Marquinis of the world, the uh, Neil Diamonds, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, so many. Uh, this comes, uh, this uh, piece today, from the Rotterdam Philharmonic. And uh, it's another piece sort of like what um, the Berklee School of Music in Boston did with uh, a bunch of the musicians composing their own, uh, well, put, you're playing their part it, well, with Berkeley, it was with uh, uh, the Burt Bacharach classic, but with uh, the uh, Rotterdam Philharmonic, uh, it's uh, Beethoven's Ode to Joy, fourth movement, Symphony Number no. Nine. Of course, you know uh, words largely from German poet poet uh, Frederick Schiller. So let's just close the show with uh, an ode to joy. We need more of it during this time. Thank you for joining us, and please do so again. I'm Dan Proft. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.